Hello, and welcome to Folklore Fever. My name is Trevor Pullman, and together we're going to journey through stories that shape folklore from various parts of the world. Let's dig in. On Thanksgiving Day in the year 1900, a group of about 20 guests gathered at the Hossack Farmhouse in Medora, Iowa. This was a good part of the rural farm town. Medora today has been observed by some of the surrounding communities, but is still quite rural. The Hossack family consisted of John, who worked as a farmer, but had done quite well for himself, his wife Margaret, and their 10 children ranging in age from 35 to 13. It's unclear if all of the family had gathered in the home that Thanksgiving day among the family's guests, or if just the children who still lived at home were in attendance. Either way, however, it would be John's last holiday, as two days later in the middle of the night on December 1st, or in the early hours of December 2nd, John would be brutally killed. He was found with two savage axe wounds to the head. Given the state of the body, it was clear he was attacked at about midnight, but he would not die until nine hours later. He would have suffered in agony, unable to move or make any noise during this time. Margaret claimed to have also been asleep right next to him, never waking from her sleep. The killer left several bloodstains on the floor of the bedroom as they walked from the room, through the home sitting room, and out to the porch where another bloodstain was left. Finally, the killer walked to the farm's granary, across from the farmhouse, and buried the axe used to kill John. John had been born in Rosshire, Scotland, in 1841. When he was an infant, he had moved with his parents to Canada, and as a young man, he immigrated again to the United States. He had moved around the Midwest United States in search of land to purchase for his own farm. During that time, he met and married his wife, Margaret. Shortly before their marriage, John had purchased 120 acres of land in Iowa suitable for farming. When news of John's murder swept through the small town, people were quick to take sides. As people began to question and point fingers at Margaret, they began to ask how she could continue to sleep through her husband's attacker entering the room, forcefully bringing the axe down twice on his head, and even through John bleeding out over the course of nine hours before he actually died. Head wounds bleed a large amount, so it's unclear how Margaret was not awoken by the amount of blood soaking into her bed, even without considering the noise that the actual attack would have caused. This, coupled with the rumors that John had been violent and abusive with his family, made her the prime suspect. Just as John's funeral ended four days later in the nearby town of New Virginia, the police arrived and arrested Margaret. According to the Des Moines Capitol's article about the situation, the sheriff, Lewis Hodson, put his hand around Margaret's arm to lead her away while stating, This is not a matter of my choosing. The accusations of abuse gave Margaret a motive, in addition to her proximity to the events of the murder, supposedly without seeing anything. The rumors of domestic troubles did not stop at John's violent nature, however. The couple were known to fight openly and often. John had also been accused of threatening both Margaret and their children. It is also important to note that some of the children still lived at home, with the youngest sons, James and Ivan, sharing a room right next to John and Margaret's room. These children also claimed that they did not hear anything in the night and correlated their mother's story. Another strike against Margaret's defense is that she had openly wished death upon John. On April 6th of the next year, after about five months in jail awaiting trial, Margaret's trial began. The trial strangely hinged on the family's dog, Shep. Shep was known to be an active and territorial dog, barking at strangers and stray livestock. According to Margaret's testimony, she had heard Shep barking aggressively between 9 and 10 the night of the murder, but nothing after that, including during the attack. 
This was correlated by testimony from both neighbors and other members of the family. The neighbors also testified that Shep was also seen in the morning after the attack and was looking uncharacteristically drowsy and quiet. Much of the defense's case rested on the evidence that the dog seemed to have been drugged with chloroform, allowing the perpetrator to enter the home without alerting anyone to their presence. The prosecution argued that the dog's behavior was due to his witnessing of the murder, which caused it to express shame and sorrow. Although this argument is unorthodox by today's standard, it seems to have served the prosecution well, as the trial only had five days worth of witness testimony before the all-male jury found Margaret guilty. There's likely some bias involved, as this was only eight years after the famous Lizzie Borden case gripped the United States in a way that was fairly similar. Just as in the Borden case, the murder had been committed using an axe, in a situation with no eyewitnesses or smoking gun evidence. Margaret was sentenced to life in prison at Anamosa State Penitentiary. This is a state prison that is still in use in Anamosa, Iowa today. Notably, this prison would be the temporary home of John Wayne Gacy much later than Margaret's stay there. When she was transported to the prison, Margaret said to Sheriff Hodson, quote, Sheriff Hodson, tell my children not to weep for me. I am innocent of the horrible murder of my husband. Someday people will know I am not guilty of that terrible crime, end quote, according to a Des Moines newspaper. That article also stated that, quote, it is universally believed at Indianola that if Mrs. Hossack did not murder her husband, she knows who did, end quote. Margaret would not stay in prison for long, however, as the next year her conviction was overturned by the Iowa Supreme Court as a mistrial. This meant that she would need to have a new trial in a nearby county to avoid as much bias as possible from the jury. Margaret was released on bail during that time and lived with the continued support of her nine living children. The second trial began in nearby Madison County. This trial would end in a hung jury, meaning that they would have not come to a consensus on her guilt or innocence. As a jury has to have a unanimous ruling, this would generally cause another mistrial and a third trial to follow with a new jury involved. However, a third trial was never pursued by the state. It isn't clear as to why this happened. Maybe it's that the evidence was just too scant either way, or it could be that because this trial had become such a public affair, that it would be too difficult to find an impartial jury. As I said before, it seemed that almost everyone had an opinion on this case, even if they were not from the area, as the newspapers followed the story closely. There was never anyone else that was charged with the crime. Margaret would live another five years before dying in Indianola, Iowa, the site of her original trial. After the second trial, Margaret refused to speak regarding the murder, the case, or even her husband. As there was not enough evidence to find her guilty, her children had her buried next to John. Some people took this as a slap in the face to John's memory, as he was buried next to his potential killer. The case was not out of the limelight, even though there had not been a guilty verdict and the prime suspect had died. One reporter that was covering the case for the Des Moines Daily News, named Susan Glassbell, had done some additional writing about the case. About three weeks before Margaret had died, Susan starred in the first performance of her own one-act play with her theater troupe, the Provincetown Players. The Provincetown Players are often considered the first modern theatrical troupe in the United States. The play itself, named Trifles, was based on her experience during the Hossett case. When she first began reporting on the case, she had done it solely from the courtroom. She had originally depicted Margaret as a cold-blooded, serious, and intimidating woman. The way that she had described Margaret in her first article was that it was not outside the realm of possibility that she had, quote, beaten his, referring to John, brains out with an axe, end quote. 
This was in stark contrast to her second piece about Margaret and the rest of the Hossack family. She had come by the farmhouse during the trial to gather information for her next piece. Margaret is then described as being a kind, genial woman who simply missed her children. Glassbell's play would become a hit, and she would eventually turn the play into a short story named A Jury of Her Peers. In 1930, Glassbell would also go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for drama. One of the things that sticks out in the play trifles, however, is that during an informal investigation by a neighbor of the couple acting as proxies for the Hossacks and the wife of the sheriff, a vital piece of evidence is left out of the official investigation. It is found that the murdered husband had killed his wife's prized pet bird, the wife in turn killing him. Because the women also find evidence of the husband's abusive nature, the women bury the dead bird and conceal the evidence of the wife's guilt. As Glassbell also had access to the farmhouse during the trial, it makes one wonder if this portion of the story is also based in real life. The Hossacks did have a child who died in infancy. Was this possibly due to an outburst by John? Much like in the story, this festering anger over the years and years of abuse could have led Margaret to kill John, much like in Glassbell's play and later short story. Another possible answer is that although they have somewhat conflicting views, the reporter claiming that Margaret killed her husband, or knew who did, and Margaret stating her innocence may both be correct. The Hossack children, especially Ivan or James, who would have been 13 and 16 respectively at the time of the murder, may have been involved. As their bedroom was in close proximity to their parents' bedroom, this may have caused them to overhear arguing and physical altercations that happened in John and Margaret's bedroom. As these were boys who grew up doing farm work, including swinging an axe to split firewood, they would have been strong enough to use the tool to kill John, likely even more easily than Margaret herself would. Although Margaret was not going to incriminate her own children over the murder, she could also say in honesty that she was innocent. It may be that in being willing to go to jail for a murder she did not commit, she was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for her children, who were adamant at her innocence. Did Margaret choose to take the fall so that her child, who may have just been protecting their mother from the physical abuse of their father, would not suffer in jail for their whole life? The third possibility is what the defense from the case made it out to be. This would require an unknown third party to have snuck into the Hossack home after sedating their dog, killed John without waking Margaret, and snuck away with no further evidence left behind, the only remaining evidence of the third party being the buried axe under the family granary and the badly disfigured corpse of John Hassock. Officially, this case remains open as a cold case. Given the gap of over a hundred years since any progress was made in the case, it'll likely remain that way. However, the story itself still sticks with us anytime the play Trifles is read or performed, or anytime that a jury of her peers is read. In addition to these two works, there's another book that goes in-depth about the killing, the trial, and its aftermath, called Midnight Assassin by Patricia L. Bryan and Thomas Wolfe. Perhaps as we come closer to the 120th anniversary of the murder, more answers may be found. Thank you for listening to Folklore Fever. This episode was written and researched by me, Trevor Pullman. This episode's topic was also a request from listener Jaden. The opening theme is by me, you. You can find more of his excellent work at thedarkpiano.com. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please send an email to folklorefever at gmail.com. See you soon.